Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. I've been away for a while. I've had a few health issues to deal with, and I'm just so thrilled to be back um, sharing this podcast with you. Today, I have Hugh Prestwood on the show. Hugh is a three-time Grammy-nominated songwriting legend, and he's one of my all-time favorite writers. I have studied his songs for years. We talked about so many things during this conversation. He talked about the perks of not co-writing, how co-writing and the music business can cause anxiety and hinder the best work in some writers, and how to Hugh, co-writing would be like a painter handing another painter his paintbrush in the middle of a painting. He talked about how he loves perfect rhyme and how it's a wonderful boundary for him and a challenge to write his best lyrics. We took two of his songs and took a really deep dive into the craft and the uh, concept for each one of these songs. And he also talked about how important the truth is in a song, but not to be bound by it. Hugh is also in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He's had songs recorded by Judy Collins, Randy Travis, winning BMI's Award for Country Song of the Year, Trisha Yearwood's song, The Song Remembers When, winning Nashville Songwriters Association Song of the Year, and he won an Emmy as well. Other artists he's had songs recorded by include Alison Krauss, The Judds, James Taylor, and so many more. I feel like I was sitting at the feet of a master during this conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear this. Hello, Hugh. I am really looking forward to talking with you today. Oh, well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it here. I would like to start with you telling the listeners about your backstory and where this all started for you. Okay. Well, uh, I'm, I have a very unusual uh, career trajectory. Uh, at the age of 30 years old, I, I began to pursue uh, being a songwriter. I, uh, I had written songs in El Paso, where I'm from. Um, and through a series of uh, circumstances, I decided to move to New York because I had a friend in New York and try to pursue being a singer-songwriter. And uh, I knocked around New York for about two or three years, and then I got discovered by Judy Collins. And uh, she recorded a couple of my songs right away and got me my first staff writing job at the entertainment company in New York City. And um, then, then uh, I had this hit with her. There was a small hit called Hard Times for Lovers. And, um, you know, that, that was a, a pretty neat thing. And, uh, but not too much happened. And then uh, about a year later, uh, I thought, I think I'm gonna go down to Nashville. I always felt like my songs would do well down there. And so Judy Collins said, well, you know, if you go down to Nashville, uh, go see Jimmy Bowen. He's, I'm talking about him maybe doing my next album. Well, he's a very famous producer. I didn't know, I had no idea who he was. So, so I went down there with a cassette of three songs and one of the songs on there was called um, The Sound of Goodbye that Crystal Gale uh, had a number one record. That was my first number one record. Were the demos of those three songs just you on guitar and vocal? Yeah, they were my demos. Yeah. I, I've always done my own demos. And um, that's sort of part of my writing in a way. But um, a funny little story about this is I was so nervous around Jimmy Bowen. I didn't know who he was, but I said, you can listen to him later. 
You know what I mean? I don't want to be there when we listen. So I gave him this cassette and then I never heard from him again. And about a year later, uh, a friend of mine from Nashville called up and said, guess what Crystal Gale's first single is? Sound of Goodbye. Oh. And what's funny is he had forgotten where he got it and he couldn't remember who wrote the song. And oh. so they actually had they actually had the album slated, you know, to be the first single and they couldn't figure out who wrote the song. And they were running around Nashville, finding a guy that knew me, said that's the Hugh Preston song. Oh. So anyway, that was that was a, a big you know hit. And, uh, you know, but uh, I, I always say my career has been like a. Tarzan swinging through the jungle, meaning that uh, just about the time I run out of momentum, you know, I grab another vine and I keep going. But I, I have a very strange kind of career. You know, when I moved to New York, believe it or not, I had never known another songwriter. Oh. Isn't that weird? So what inspired you to write your first song? You know, when, uh, both my grandparents uh, were musicians and uh, I just... I, I, you know, believe it or not, I was probably, um, I got out of college with a degree in English and then uh, I started teaching sixth grade. Mm -hmm. That was another accident. I never intended to teach school. But uh, I just started uh, writing songs. You know, maybe Bob Dylan or someone was saying, hey, you can, anybody can write a song, you know? So I just started writing songs and uh, I just really, kind of got a pretty good reaction from it, from people. And also I just really liked doing it. And then from then on, I, I just have always loved songwriting. After that, after that hit uh, with uh, Crystal Gale, I knocked around for a couple of uh, other kind of staff writing deals. And then I started working for Tommy West, who did all of Jim Croce stuff. And then he founded MTM uh, in Nashville you know, the Mary Tyler Moore Enterprises opened up a Nashville label and they had some really good artists. They had Beth Chapman and Rod, Rodney Foster and a lot of good people that we got signed. And that's when I and then that's when Michael Johnson sort of came into the picture. And he was known for his big hit, Bluer Than Blue. Yeah. And he recorded your song. Well, we really hit it off. You know, uh, when I got inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, I said that he was the main reason for it. He just really, uh, you know, he, first he did The Moon Is Still Over Shoulder, yeah. and that was another number one. And then he recorded a song of mine called That's That, which is a really cool song, if I do say so. Yeah. And it only was up to like in the top 10, but it was so different that uh, all of a sudden producers started calling me up. You know, even though I'd had two number ones before that, there's a lot of guys that gets around town who've had a couple of number one. But that's that was so unusual. Then I started getting some real calls. Let's take a listen to that. There's a quarter moon that's laying up on the ridge. And he's making up his mind to rise or to set. There's a lot of water flowing under this bridge. There's a voice inside me saying, get your feet wet, cause that's that. I can scream, I can shout, I can cry my eyes out, but she's not coming back, that's that. I can hold 
voice, he really sang your song. Now, you are one of the very few writers that didn't actually live in Nashville. Did you commute from New York? Yeah, I actually drove down there two or three times initially. I, uh, you know, funny thing about my personality is that uh, I don't like to have the music business right in my face. Mm. It's hard to explain, except that uh, I love going down to Nashville, but uh, I start feeling like I need to hurry up. You know, this so-and-so had a second number one and this and that. And I, and I, I just start feeling like I have to hurry up. And the way I write is I really don't want to have anything to do with music business. I really just want to write what I want to write, for better or worse. Uh, I was thinking the other day that, uh, one, you know, I don't ever co-write, but once in a while, I've got three songs in my whole career. I don't like to co-write and... Um, one of the reasons is that that other person becomes a boundary to me. Mm. In other words, I can't just go where I want to go. You know, there's this other person here that has to say, well, I don't know about, you know, where are you going? And, and, uh, and the other thing about my personality is I just, I, for some reason, I can't seem to relax in front of another person. It's like I'm back in school and I'm up at the blackboard trying to do a math problem and the whole class is looking at me. I just, it's funny, I had a friend uh, who got kind of plugged in in Nashville who lived in this area and he used to go down there and tell me what was going on. And I finally told him, look, I don't know, what's, don't tell me what's going on. I don't want to hear about the music business. I think there's a lot of writers listening today who are going to relate to that and appreciate the fact that, you know, someone who is successful and as accomplished as you are um, had sort of performance anxiety or writing anxiety around other writers my first writing deal, my publisher did not want me co-writing. And he finally said, if you can find someone that will let you be you in the room, then you can co-write. But so often, especially people just starting out, you know, they might write with a big hit writer and just get nervous and assume that what that writer has to say will be better or more important than what they have to say. So thank you for, for saying that. And because you haven't had the pressure of the industry, um, you've had the luxury of writing at your own pace. You know, I'm a very slow writer. I've, read, I've always written about a song a month of which uh, the lyric is, what I do in my normal pattern is to get an idea and then get some music going to it. And then I start trying to let the music inspire me to say something. You know, certain melodies that are, that are moving to me make me want to say something, something in me very fundamental. Like I, if I hear some strange melody I've never heard before, but it, it's, I, it moves me, something in me wants to speak. It's weird. Um, so anyway, one of the things I do in my, in my writing is because I, I have to, it takes me so long to get happy with a lyric. You know, I always say it's like doing the New York Times crossword puzzle where I get about half of it, not too much, and then it gets harder. And then the last part drives me crazy. And, and there's like some verses something I can't get right. So there's, I spent two weeks getting this last verse, but I'm, um, the music is what kind of keeps me going. I started to, I started getting into the pattern where I, I do tracks while I'm working on the lyric. So that when I get the, practically the whole demo done, I still may need a couple of lines, but the music can keeps me turned on. So it doesn't get tiresome. 
you know, I'm not a real uh, self-disciplined, you know, I can sit there and sweat on a lyric for, you know, hours. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the first things that happened to me when uh, Judy Collins got my first uh, staff writing job, I had been working at uh, a publishing company, a book publishing company. And uh, I, and the first, you know, the first week I was suddenly didn't have to go to work. And I thought, boy, I'm just going to write songs all day. And I, and I realized after about two hours, I couldn't do it. You know what I mean? I, I was good for two or three hours. And, uh, but anyway, I, one of my, one of my real mottos is I never write one minute more than I want to write. Mm. You know, if, if I can get into something, I may work on it for hours, you know, yeah. but other days I just, well, I'm done. I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to force it. And, you know, another thing that I think you'll find, uh, it's very true of my songs is that almost all of them have something real that happened. Mm. You know, I'm a big believer in telling uh, aspiring songwriters to, to, if you can, to pull something real out of your experiences that you can build around. I always feel like that gives me a kind of confidence that this really is true. So as long as something is true, you might, for the sake of the story, invent material or characters that need that are there to serve the song oh definitely definitely just i just need you know i call it a, a, like a a kite flying you just gotta have one t- tether to the ground you know what i mean then i can do whatever i want okay. but um you know like ghost in this house really came out of something that really happened and so did the song remember swim come out of something like that i want to talk to you about your song ghost in this house especially the allison krauss version she just wow really added so much to the hauntingness of that song. And I wanted to ask you where that idea came from. How did you start that song? Well, you know, I, I, ha- I have a long list of song titles, some idea. And so uh, I was watching uh, the movie version of Grapes of Wrath. And there's a very moving scene in there where this character named Muley has been run off his land and he's lost everything. And He's talking to Tom Joad and he says, I'm, I'm just a graveyard ghost, you know? And I said, wow, that's interesting. So I wrote down this idea of I'm just a ghost. And then that just sat there for a while, maybe a few months or maybe a year or two even. And uh, then my wife got into a, a car accident that was uh, not serious, but it was, she was injured somewhat. And, and uh, sort of in the dark of winter, you know, I, I had, I saw that title and I, and I sort of, I thought, what would it, if that had been a really serious car wreck, you know, what, and so that's where that song came from. It's just, what would have happened if I had lost my wife? And uh, so then I just, I started in, this song was about really, you know, losing somebody and having real heartbreak. And so the, I always go back to my own memories. And I, the two big heartbreaks I had in my adult life uh, were uh, the first one, uh, the first verse is really about that first heartbreak. Uh, I, I was really involved with this girl and uh, I was so devastated when she broke it off that I didn't want to get out of bed. And I remember I just didn't want to do anything. And that's where that first verse comes. I don't pick up the mail. I don't want to do anything. And then the second verse, you know, uh, same thing. Uh, She sits down in your chair. This other big heartbreak I had was with a girl I was working with at Harcourt Brace where I was working. 
And that broke off. And um, I remember walking by her desk. She had quit. And I remember walking by and I, I remember she used to sit right there, you know. And so that's where that's sort of, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm always trying to find something like that that I can really pull out of my life that's somewhat real. But then, you know, I, I always tell students, don't get bound to the truth, you know. Uh, but uh, that's so, but those, those are the two emotional things. Most of the time, uh, like I said, I'm, it gives me a, sen a certain sense of uh, confidence to feel like uh, this is really something that has got some truth in it. Did you write the verses first? I can't say I wrote them first. You know, uh, one of the things I usually tend, I usually, if I have a title, I tend to want to write the chorus first if I can, mm -hmm. even though I'm not sure, you know, what the verses are going to be. So I think that, you know, I'm just a ghost in this house. You know, I'm just a shadow. I started trying to think of just things that were just barely there, like a shadow, you know. Uh, and and I, I had originally had, I'm, I'm a wisp of smoke. And then it occurred to me one day, what about a whisper of smoke? That fits really good. And that's kind of different. You know, uh, one of the things I have learned over many years is that uh, to follow my gut instincts always. Like, you know, early in my uh, writing, I, my brain would have said, well, you don't say whisper of smoke, you know, so don't use that. But then I was, you know, together enough to write, oh, that's, that'll work. And so, so I usually write the chorus first, uh, if I can. And uh, then I try to get the verses to really point at the chorus. I'm always telling uh, when I'm teaching songwriters, you know, I want every part of that song to be pointing at the title. I want, it, I want it all about the title. I want some verse that's just about. And then, you know, another thing I do, like uh, I, I've often told classes, like uh, the way an amateur would have written that first verse in Ghost in This House, instead of saying, I don't pick up the mail and I pick up the phone, he would, you know, I would have written maybe earlier. I would have said, I just don't, I'm, I'm so heartbroken. I feel so terrible, you know, I don't want to do anything. But uh, I, I find it very interesting sometimes to intrigue the listener you know i don't pick up the mail you know where is this going you know i don't answer you know but uh so i kind of like to do that it's so visual you did such a great job of showing not telling i don't pick up the mail i don't pick up the A big thing I like to do is visualize. Like I love visual images. Pretty early in my writing, I started realizing that people really react to visual images if they're done right. And so I, I was I was visualizing this house, you know, up on a hill or something. And it was really dark, and there was like one light in there. And I, I just, at some point, I thought that to me the only good line in that chorus is I just rattle around, you know. But I think it's a really, really worked good. So you're visualizing the scene and then, you know, picking words that will help you to describe that scene so that the listener can visualize the story. I, you know, it's funny. I love words. I love playing with words. Uh, you know, I just, I love the sound of some words. And uh, I, I just think, uh, I guess I was born with it or something. 
but I, I love the sound of words. And, you know, I was an English major yeah. and uh, I read a lot of really great poetry when I was in college of the kind that, you know, makes sense, you know, like Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost and so forth. And, uh, and I think that also helped me uh, develop an ear. That makes so much sense that you studied poetry. Um, Robert Frost is such a metrist and um, writes in iambic pentameter. And so, you know, it's a great skill for young writers to read poetry and to get used to um, really clean rhythms and the length of lines. And uh, it really shows in your writing. And so you had this idea and you started in with the music. Yeah, I probably, you know, like as I said earlier, I probably had the music going pretty early on you know what I mean and it's really you know it's funny it's such a simple melody you know I always tell songwriters uh one of the most amazing things uh, and a hard thing to do is to be simple and yet appealing or an original and yet keep it simple the melody is simple in the sense that it's easy to sing but what I love about this is that the character is despondent and sad and the phrasing of your melody where you start every phrase after the strongest beat in the measure the whole first beat is left open um, really supports the emotional life and the body posture of this character so we're in the key of d and the other thing to notice about this melody is that you start the melody on the third which is the f sharp in the key of d so here's our chord that states the key so we're a d chord and then you've got one, two, three, four, one. Two, three, four, one. And singing that off the beat like that really supports the way that the singer's feeling. Um, you could have easily put that all on the downbeat and that would have felt really more... Um, assertive, maybe angry. And so it would have been maybe one, two, three, four. I don't pick up the mail. I don't pick up the phone as opposed to one, two, three, four. I don't pick up the mail. I don't pick up the phone. So it's really laid back and just so intuitively written to support that character. And then the other thing that I love about this melody is the fact that it really doesn't touch down on the tonic. Um, and for anybody that's listening today that might be sort of, you know, just thinking about what that means, you know, we're in the key of D major. And I know that you want me to go to finish that. So, you know, those seven notes, uh, when you get to that seventh note, that leading tone, it really makes you want to go back to the, to the tonic note. So when you don't utilize the tonic within a melody, it can feel sort of unanchored and floaty, just like a ghost would, right? So this melody, you've got one, two, three, four. So that was the third up to the five, and then So the melody has not played that tonic note yet. Again, no tonic note yet. Now, you could have so easily just repeated that melody again, but instead you evolve that melody and raise it up for the second section. 
three, four, one. Now we're on the tonic, but it's sort of the end of the phrase. One. Now we're ending on the fifth degree of the scale. So you still haven't heard that resolution of the tonic, but you're about to hear it in the chorus. So, you know, I know that you say, Hugh, that you're a very intuitive writer, and there and that is a wonderful word because that means that you're a writer who's just very aware of what the song needs. And when people detach from that, um, they lose uh, the best song they could write. And the song is not really supporting the lyric. The melody's not supporting the lyric. The melody's not supporting the character and the emotional internal life of that character. And there's also a harmonic journey to this song. Um, You hear, we're going to play the whole song in just a second, but um, also the way the melody just comes in by itself. And the first chord you hear is the five chord, which is five notes away from the tonic so it's away from home um and then you play a five seven chord and then you go back to the one just in the harmony but the harmony starts away from home and so if you think about the tonic as being home for the listeners or for anyone kind of wondering what I'm talking about you know just think about the tonic note the first note of the scale of the key that you're in as being home and the journey to home and away from home really affects and supports the story you're telling I don't pick up the mail I don't pick up the phone I don't answer the Down in your chair 
I'm, I'm, you know, it's all instinct almost to me. Yeah. Like I heard, uh, you know, Cynthia Wilde, uh, yes. you know, very menacing. I heard her say one time that uh, she said, songwriters the only people that don't know how they do what they do. And in a funny way, I think that's how I think of my writing. Uh, when I first started teaching at the new school, I, you know, I'd never had a songwriting lesson. Uh, and I just had to, it took me about a year to even figure out what I was doing. You know, so, uh, I never really thought about it, but it, uh, it's, I sometimes think I'm a terrible teacher because uh, it's so much of what I do is just, I can't explain why I do it. I just do it. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, the, I often say that a really good melody to me uh, is easy, is simple enough to get my teeth into it in a way, like somebody else's song, but it has a surprise in it once in a while. And, and that third line is a surprise. You know, I, so I set you up with two very simple lines and then it didn't like I thought, well, I wanted, but I just, something in me wanted to do something different there. And so that I went up there. Well, you know, uh, it's funny when the song uh, became well-known, uh, a lot of people thought there was actually someone else else in the house that you were estranged from. But that isn't what I was saying. I was thinking about, you know, they had passed away or they, they had left. You know what I mean? You were alone. There's another ghost here, you know, meaning I'm just a ghost and there's a ghost of this other person that's in there too. So it's funny, sometimes uh, some people get uh, little angles that are not what they intended, but as long as they, they work, well, that's okay with me if you if you want to think that it was about this other person that's actually still in the house. You know, I got that, uh, there was a visual image. I was watching some television uh, show and uh, it was just some kind of TV movie or something, but there was a scene in there where this woman who, has lost her love you know uh she looks over at that side of the bed in the way that i was quite struck by that and, and so that that i sort of brought that image in it's interesting how you've drawn from you know ex relationships and you know something that you might have read or seen on television as fodder for your song and inspiration and I also want to talk for a minute about the melody of your chorus because you don't have a lot of exact repetition. That melody is in constant motion towards the end of that chorus. It's a really beautiful melody. And then later in the song, you actually change one of the lines in the chorus to a different lyric. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm always trying to I feel like uh, I want the song to be accessible, but I also want to kind of surprise you a little bit. 
And uh, it's not uncommon for me to, in the second chorus of a song, to alter a line or two. Nothing major, you know. Uh, but uh, I just, I'm always terrified, I guess, of being boring or something. And I, uh, I thought, you know, I'll do something a little different right there. You know, it's funny, the, uh, my version of it says in the second chorus, I'm just, a ghost in this, I'm just a ghost in this house. I'm just a shell of the man I was. I'm living proof of the damaged heartbreak does. Now, I, but Allison didn't get that line when she recorded it. You know, you know, whether it was intentional or accidental, I don't know. But everybody, every time I hear someone else do the song, it's always Allison's uh, verse of it. It's no big deal. It's just, you know, like I say, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a shell of the man I was. Like if you listen to Shannon's Doe's version of it, they, they sing it the way I sang it. But uh, Allison drove me nuts because, uh, you know, I was down in Miami uh, on vacation with my wife and I got this phone call. I think it was from Kyle Lenning. And he said, Allison just blew everybody away singing Ghost in This House at this big awards thing. And this was like three or four years before she recorded it. And I was like so excited. And then she drove me crazy because she was performing it, but she wouldn't record it. Like, you know, it, you know, I, I, kept, I used to see her manager. When is she going to put it on a record? She finally did, though. Her manager told me, I have some good news. Allison's going to record it. When I first heard her do the song, I, honest to God, uh, I, I almost quit playing it for about a year. Really? Because I thought, Jesus, it was so great. I just I felt like whatever I did was inadequate. It's just a perfect match between her voice and your song. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I know that you used to teach an advanced songwriting class at the New School in New York, and I was curious about what kind of assignments you would give your students. You know, believe it or not. Uh, or was it more of a workshop atmosphere? Well, no, I'd give, them, I'd give them lyric writing assignments sometimes. I didn't really do too many melodic things, because I don't think I understood how the hell I did melody myself. But, uh, you know, one of the, the main thing I did I think it was of use to the students was I really took them through how I wrote a given song. Like I'd come in this week and I say, here's the song I'm working on. Here's the decisions I made. This is why I did this and this is why I did that. And I think that was pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, it's funny because uh, it was a whole different world in Nashville. You know, I did a lot of teaching for the Nashville Songwriters Association. I did that 20 years. Uh, with these song camp things, and that was really a blast. But the the, the writers in Nashville were like uh, really hanging on every word, you know. And the, and the writers in New York were more pop kind of people, yeah. and uh, groove kind of things. And I, I was never quite, you know, as as much fun. <laughs> and you're more of a wordsmith and a tunesmith, and you really take your time because um, you're a storyteller. And you know, I've heard some really big writers in Nashville say that one of their complaints was that nobody really wanted to work and hone the song. They kind of meet at two o'clock um, one day and write, and the next day they're writing a new song at 10 and then another song at two. And that a lot of great songs or a lot of songs that had the potential to be great didn't quite get there. I've heard a lot of writers say words for the fact that uh, everybody is trying to crank them out. Yeah, and mostly if you want to hone the song, it's better to, you know, hone it yourself and then call your co-writer and, and say, you know, I got really 
inspired. Let me play you what I have. Um, cause a lot of people just want to move on to the next thing. And I did find many days writing in Nashville where I'd be co-writing and somebody would say a line and I just, you know, some guy would say, I, I think we should say red truck. And I, I would be thinking, I don't want a red truck anywhere near my song. And I just needed to, um, you know, be in an environment where I really felt like it was musically authentic to me. And there's nothing wrong with a red truck. It's just that being from California, it didn't really feel right to me. Mike Reed has uh, one of my all-time favorite lines. Uh, we were playing with the Bluebird one, and, he, and he's got ready to do a song. He said, uh, you know, somebody stop me if I begin to sing with more soul than I actually have. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a great line? That's a great line. <laughs> uh, but you know, you know, it's funny. Uh, part of my, uh, I, you know, I think I have a really uh, fundamentally pretty deep seated, deep seated insecurity, and so that's one of the reasons I just feel like it's got to be perfect. Mm. The lyrics, gotta, particularly the lyrics, got to be perfect. How do you know when one of your songs is done? You know, uh, that's obviously a question I'm sure you've been asked uh, many times, too. I don't know. I, 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 there comes a point where I say, well, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, there's not one line in it. Early in my career, when I was in New York, uh, I was sitting down with a guy at MCA, you know, it was a pretty big cheese and, and playing some of my early songs. And uh, there was this one song that had a line I thought was really a bad line, you know, and I was sitting there and he was listening to the thing and I, and I, I wanted to interrupt with something. I wanted to distract him just so he didn't hear that line. <laughs> yeah. And then, but after that, I, I just said, I don't want to, I don't ever want to feel like that again. Yeah. I want to feel like uh, there's nothing coming up that I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny in my lyric writing, there's the real spark that get, they get started was a, I get one line that I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. That is often the case. Because it really is to me like uh, every song when I started, I was like, how the hell did I do this? You know, and I'm about to climb Mount Everest. I don't even know how I do it. And, and I start noodling around it. And then I start working on the lyric. And if I'm lucky, so suddenly I'll get this one line. That's cool. You know, and that's sort of like, I don't know, that gets me going. If I get one really good line, maybe I can get another one. Yeah. What would be um, an assignment or a a prompt or an exercise that you would recommend for listeners? Well, you know, uh, I always tell them, uh, when I used to teach, I would say that uh, I want you to draw on something real if you can. Mm-hmm. Like I used to have a, 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 a sort of syndrome that would happen in my class where somebody would play a song and it just didn't sound believable, the lyric. Mm-hmm. And, I'd, and I'd say to them, is that song based on something that really happened? And they'd say, yeah. And I said, well, tell me what it was. And then they would start telling this really interesting stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? None of which was in the lyric. Yeah. And the whole class would go like, ah, that's what should be in the song. You know? So now I tell them, you know, like, if you can't get something real going and then pull something out of that reality and uh, make me feel like this is real. I, I, you know, I'm sure you feel this way too, but uh, I really do feel like the crux of a, a good song is you, it really rings true. Even if it's a silly nonsense song, you know, whatever, it's got to ring true in a way. Yeah. It can't, it sound, can't sound contrived. 
Although there's plenty, plenty of these things that do. So maybe a great assignment is to just have a student tell another student what their song is about or what they want to write about and capture some of those words because it's probably going to be um, very authentic. And oftentimes we, we get some good lyric lines just from what somebody is saying. But I do find that people are only going to write what they're comfortable feeling and it oftentimes is sort of peeling the layer of the onion, you know, okay, here's what you were comfortable saying, but what's beneath that? Or, you know, just becoming more vulnerable as a songwriter. Yeah, you know, I've always, I've always thought it's like taking your clothes off in public. It really is to, to really sort of bare your soul is, is very scary. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, you know, uh, I, I always tell songwriting students, you know, you're not writing for your family. So you don't you don't want to think like well they know this and they know that you know yeah. like uh, you know I want to write something that for people I don't know you know it's a funny an interesting thing that happened in my songwriting after a few years uh, most of my songs when I first was writing them early in my career were really written for me mm. and for other me's you know what I mean if the world was full of me's I'd be in great shape. Uh, <laughs> But I started realizing, you know, I got to bring. So I started bringing in this imaginary person into the room with me who has nothing to do with anything except that I want him to be interested, you know. And uh, I often use the uh, the analogy of being at a bar and there's some guy sitting next to you at a bar. You don't know the guy. And, uh, you know, and he starts telling you his heartbreak story or something, you know, and, and uh, I said, well, tell me what happened. You know, it's, it can be really interesting. If he tells you what happened, whereas if he keeps it too general or something, it's not interesting. You know, it's funny, one of the compliments I really like, I've heard from other songwriters, that, uh, that my lyric is really economical. You know what I mean? And I'm really a big thing. I don't want, I, I'm, I'm trying to get the fat out, what I call the fat. And you know what, I, one of the processes that I do is that, like I said, I usually get to the tracks pretty darn down the road, and I'm still working on the lyric. And I'll do what I call a scratch vocal, which I'll sing some of the lines I'm pretty sure, or I'm gonna keep, and then I go la 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 on the others. And, um, but anyway, even even when I think I've got it pretty close, I, I go out to my studio and I listen to, you know, I love to listen to my songs when I think they're getting there. So I'll, I'll listen to my song like 10 times. And, and part of me will say, gee, you know, right there, I'm getting bored. You know, right in this section here, I'm getting bored. So I think something's got to be different there. Maybe I got to change the melody or maybe I need a better line. Mm -hmm. But I want that song to, to make me turn on every single second of it if I can. Yeah, there's so many ways to engage the listener or surprise them. And that's one of the things I love about the verse in Ghost in This House is you change it the second half of the verse by having the melody go up instead of repeating the exact same idea. Um, and... What about rhyme scheme? Do you plot out your rhyme schemes consciously to support the story? Or, you know, do you do you think about your rhyme schemes? Well, no, I do. I definitely, uh, uh, it's like, you know, I once had a, uh, once had dinner with E.L. Doctorow, you know who he is, the writer, famous novelist. He said, he was talking about writers and he said, they don't have the ear. Some of them don't have the ear. And I think in a way, you develop an ear, you know, uh, just like, for instance, when you first start writing songs, I don't think you hear titles everywhere, but after a while you develop an ear. 
for a title. Hey, that sounds interesting. And I, th I think with my rhyme schemes, it's just a matter of what my ear likes. Uh, you know, and I'm a big, I'm a big kind of believer in trying to get perfect rhymes if I can. Mm. Uh, that's something, uh, I can't explain it, but most of the time, if I can really box myself into getting a perfect rhyme, I have, well, some of my best lines come up from having to get out of that box. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how, how am I going to make this, how am I going to make a, uh, you know, uh, rattle around, you know, uh, keep the lights down. At some point, I probably looked at my, my I was probably looking at uh, my rhyming dictionary or something, and I saw rattle around, like a phrase, you know, ah, I like that. But, uh, you know, it's just, to me, it's all about um, what my ear will let me do, what it won't. I often say I finish my songs about 20 times, because, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I think, oh, yeah, that's good enough. And I get up the next day, and I, oh, no, it didn't good enough. You know, it's got to be better than that. Well, you know, it really does come down to, uh, I told songwriters, uh, one time I said to him, you know, the, the, the difference between a really great tennis player or a really great golfer, you know, like I said, the guy that won the Masters, he won like by two strokes, three strokes, and that's literally 1% of the whole score. Do you know what I mean? And it's that last percent that I think really makes the prose. Absolutely. And oftentimes you'll hear a student song and think, oh, it's so close. You know, they just, if they would just change this or that. Um, and oftentimes they just don't know, they don't know how to take it to the next level or, or how to finish it. A lot of times I don't either. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I know if that was my song, I'd be working on that line you know what i mean I, i'd have to keep working on it but off the top of my head i can't tell them what to say uh yeah. but uh it's um it's very elusive to me to kind of you just have to kind of to me it's almost like you just have to keep brainstorming to see if you can't get uh the lyric where you want it to get to when i had uh hard rock bottom of your heart you know uh harlan howard uh, came up to me. Randy Travis. Hit. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it was a big hit. So good. Uh, but the Harlan Howard said to me, you know, that's a good song. He said, it tells you where it's going and then it goes there. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Mm. In a way, to me, it would have been wrong to change the end of Ghost in His House because that isn't where it was going to go. I'll tell you a funny little, a little, funny little mechanical thing is when I wrote the chorus, the first time I wrote it, I didn't repeat the title at the end. Mm. You know, I, I'm just, I'm all up. Once we're out of control, I let my body and soul into in chorus. And then later on, that well, let me repeat the title in there again at the end of the chorus. So that 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 occurred later. But, you know, I've always told uh, songwriters, you know, if you can get that title in there more than once and it works, that's a good way to go. And so I got it in there. You know, it's funny, Michael Johnson is the reason that Alison Krauss cut that song. Yeah, they were they were on tour together, and Michael was playing Ghost in His House, and uh, that's how she heard it. So I owe Michael's, you know, so much. How are you doing on time? I got plenty of time. Okay, great. Because I would love to talk about your song that was recorded by Trisha Yearwood. The song remembers when, which is such a great title, and one of the things about this song is that. 
you definitely change the lyric to some of the choruses and oftentimes students will ask, you know, kind of what's the, what's the rule on changing the lyrics to a chorus? Yeah. You know, I just, like I said earlier, I, uh, I like to kind of make it keep happening a little bit, you know, if I can uh, change a little bit here, but nothing major. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, again, it's just, it's just, I just am paranoid that something's going to be wrong with the song. I want to try to make it really interesting. Uh, like, uh, on, uh, I don't know if you know my song, Asking Us to Dance, the Kath Matea recorded. That's one I haven't heard. It's, it's a pretty cool song. But uh, on the first course, I say, uh, uh, it isn't all that often. In the second chorus, I say it isn't very often, you know, big deal. But I know, I just I just felt like varying it a little bit. The song Remembers When is such a good title. And I remember hearing you talk years ago about where the idea came from. And I think I remember you saying it was an Anne Sexton poem that inspired the song. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I had the idea. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny. Um, Anne Sexton was a pretty interesting poet. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with her stuff, but she, I think she's pretty cool. And uh, she committed suicide. And a biography came out about her and about that suicide and everything. And, and so I didn't know that much about her, but I read that there was quite a controversy because the, the psychiatrist had released his notes, you know, but the, with the family's permission, but a lot of people said that he shouldn't have done that. But anyway, the, the poem that really got her going, uh, recognizing, uh, recognition-wise, was this song. I think it's called "The Music Swims Back to Me." The music and, swims back to me. Yeah, and 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 it's like this woman is in like an old age home or some kind of institution, and the radio's playing, and she, and at some point she says, "That song remembers more than I do." Uh, oh man, what a great idea that the song remembers. So that was the initial idea for the thing. And I wrote that down. The song remembers. I, later on, I added the wind so I could get a, you know, rhyme out of it, I guess. But uh, then that song sat in my title book for at least a year, if not longer. And uh, my wife and I were on vacation up in Rocky Mountain National Park. And a lot of that verses, you know, we were rolling through the Rockies. We were up above the clouds. You know, that, that was a stride we were taking. And we had the radio on, and I had this big Randy Travis head. And the first time we ever heard it on the radio was when we were driving through the Rocky Mountains. And I remember thinking, wow, what a great moment. I'm going to remember this, you know, forever. You know, in the Rockies, hearing, hearing Randy Travis hit, sing my song. And then I thought, wow, I got that idea back home about the song remembering. So that's, so that, when I went back home, I started trying to work that out. Uh, and then I started, uh, thinking of situations where I'd heard a song that took me back. Do you mean like I was standing at the counter, I was waiting for the change when that old familiar, I heard that old familiar music start. It was like, a you know what I mean? So, and that was an actual thing that happened. I was at Shoney's in Nashville paying my check and uh, they had music playing and I heard one of my songs uh, on this, you know, music stuff they were playing. That was, so that was, a, that was a real thing that happened. And the, and the second verse, Rolling Through the Rockies, same thing. That's based on something that really happened. 
and the last verse was you know that's where you get into to me the hard work because i thought how am i what am i going to say in this last verse that's going to sum this up and that that's where i said it's been a long time trying to sum up you know uh what that verse said and again you had a wonderful singer with a wonderful song um i mean trisha yearwood what a singer you know that you know we couldn't get that song cut you know that i was like really getting depressed because we couldn't get a cut and i felt like god if i can't get that cut then i'm just going to quit writing right. you know i said that's as good as i can write yeah i knew it was a great song and then kath matea cut it and they left it off the album another great and i was i was like devastated i said i'll eat that record if there's <laughs> 10 better songs on there than than this song but it really worked out great you know trisha did this i'll tell you a funny story about that uh, i was told by the uh assistant to garth fundus that uh they were running down some songs and they started in on song remembers when and then at some point trisha said oh, let's move on to the next song she didn't want to continue with it she i said too she said something like i sound too much like karen carpenter or something and and so they took a break and the and the engineer he said when they came back he said i think you should listen to this again and he and he put it together and that saved the song isn't that amazing oh who was the engineer it's, and his name was scott i always say i'm a car uh but uh i can't even say his last name now i tell you a funny thing though when when i when garth fundus i was in his office and he played me that song and i jumped out of my chair and i said we're in the hall of fame I really said that. It was like, it just blew my mind. She she just killed it. And then I went through this horrible, uh, you know, again, it's like my most beautiful child is now being paraded naked in front of the world. And what if they don't like it, you know? And I had this, all this anxiety about it. Is it going to be okay? Is it going to be a hit, you know? Uh, but it was, boy, she nailed it. And, you know, oh man, that's just one of those things. Uh, every now and then I get reminded of what a great singer the difference between me and a great singer is, you know, how much and more they bring to it. Yeah, but your delivery and the heart that you put into your demos is what they're hearing. And I'm sure the singers are inspired by that. Well, that's, uh, might as well think that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that. I, I played, I went over to, I had a strange situation where I went over to Carly Simon's apartment one time to co-write with her. Where was she, that, New York? Yeah. She had decided she had one more album to do on Arista. She didn't like Clive Davis at all. And she didn't want to do another record. And so somebody had the idea, look, why don't you do the, your last um, writing with some Nashville writers? And so they, you know, uh, I can't think of what's, what the producer's name was. Good guy, uh, Tim Dubois, sent her a bunch of tapes off of different writers you know, and said, pick out ones you want to co-write with. And, and then he called me up one day and said, you won the lottery. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Carl, you're one of the people Carly wants to ride with. And so uh, I went over to her apartment uh, and I played her song, Marvis Wynn, and she said, that's a perfect song. And I go, all right, well, that sounds good to me. Uh, of course, being the non-co-writer that I am, we didn't really get very far. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yes, and writing with icons, I would imagine, would be a little bit <laughs> nerve-wracking. Uh, you know, if I were to write with Paul McCartney, I don't think I could write anything. I think I would just focus on the fact that I was that <laughs> was with him in the room. 
Well, you know, so did you ever hear my story about writing with Neil Diamond? Yes, but tell it, tell, tell it, tell it here. Well, you know, uh, so it was the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. I don't ever co-write, but they called me up and said, look, uh, Neil's writing with some top writers and he, you're one of the ones that he'd like to write with. So I, oh man, I can't, and I'm a big fan of Neil Diamonds. And so I, I said, uh, well, I got to do that. So they said, we'll fly you down here to Nashville. And uh, you come out on uh, like uh, the first day and you just kind of hang out with Neil, you know, get to know him a little bit. And the next day, you and Neil will start writing. And uh, so I, I, I flew down and went out to this house, Neil Diamond's renting it. He was there with a couple of other, his producer and a couple of other people. And they were great. Neil was great. I also talked to some of the other writers who'd already written with him, you know, and they said, oh, he's great. You know, he'll give you a guitar if he likes you. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, the night before I was supposed to actually go down and ride with him, I just got, I was having such terrible anxiety. I could see myself sitting in the room with Neil Diamond, you know, for several hours being a complete stump, you know, and, and, and I really, I just really, eventually I got so freaked out. I, I said, uh, I don't have to do this, you know, I don't have to do this. And I, so I called up the next morning. I, I said, you know, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to come because uh, my mother's been in a car accident. Oh. I, I, I thought I, I had to have a good excuse. <laughs> And you know what's funny is I had I had half started on I was going to come in with my half baked version of on the on the verge which was later a really big hit and uh, so anyway that's what happened and I told Mike Reed and a few other people about this and he laughed so anyway I get home about two months later I get home and I, my phone rings and I said hello and, and they said is this Hugh Preston and I said yes and they said uh, this is uh, Neil Diamond's office and we're just wondering how your mother was doing. And I almost had a heart attack. And I couldn't even remember at first what I had said. Oh, yeah, car accident. And as I was stammering, I hear Mike and he's laughing. That was Mike Reed. <laughs> but anyway, you know, that uh, I, I sometimes tell my story about Neil. My wife says, don't tell that Neil Diamond story. She thinks it makes me sound like I'm bragging or something. But I think it's actually really helpful to share that because not a lot of writers talk about the anxiety they go through writing with not only other writers, but especially hit writers or, you know, stars or artists, it can really affect your ability to write your best. You know, when I first, uh, when I first had my Crystal Gale hit, uh, and I'd gotten to know Jim Ed Norman uh, pretty well, who was the head of Warner Brothers. And so when I came down there as a writer for MTM, like in 85, he called up about 10 of the top writers and said, you want to write with this guy? Well, naturally they said yes, because, you know, it's, Jim Ed Norman's asking him. So, so anyway, I got together with each one of these guys, and uh, a little by little, I, you know, I couldn't believe the kind of things they were throwing out. You know, like about the red truck. You know what I mean? I thought, you're kidding me. That's your. You, you want to write that in a song? It, it was this in this really cliched stuff. And uh, but uh, it's funny. I ask him uh, each time. I ask him, what does he really like about co-writing? And uh, one of the things I expected, which was they kind of, you know, they kind of work together. And the other thing I hadn't expected, they said it, it gives my life structure. Yeah. I have to be somewhere at 10 o'clock to write, you know, so it gave them a lot more structure. Since you don't have to be accountable to co-writers, um, do you have a daily discipline or a time that you write that you set aside for yourself? 
Yeah, normally uh, in my normal situation, in other words, I don't have to go to the doctor. I don't have to go on vacation or something. Uh, my normal thing is to uh, go out, uh, you know, like about 10 in the morning and maybe I have something going already or maybe I'm starting from scratch and I just sort of noodle around. I always trying to, the music to me is what I'm looking for most initially. I'm trying to find some melody thing going. And um, then I just kind of keep noodling around with it. And if I get something going, it's like a spark. And then I kind of, then I'll work, uh, you know, as long as I feel like working on it. Part of me always likes to stop when I'm, when I'm still kind of jazzed about it. Do you know what I mean? So that I get up the next day and, oh, yeah, that was starting to happen. But uh, I'm not real, uh, I'm not, I'm not like a, one of these really nose to the grindstone kind of people. I, I, I really do believe uh, this is a labor of love for me, and, and that's what I want to do. I want to love. I want to get off in the right of the song. I want to dive into your song, The Song Remembers When. And um, for those people that haven't heard it yet, let's just let's start by playing the song. I was standing at the counter I was waiting for the change When I heard that old familiar music start It was like a lighted match Had been tossed into my soul It was like a dam had broken in my heart After taking every detour Getting lost and losing track so that even if I wanted, I could not find my way back After driving out the memory of the way things might have been After I'd forgotten all about us, the song remembers when We were rolling through the rockies, we were up above the clouds when a station out of Jackson played that song And it seemed to fit the moment And the moment seemed to freeze When we turned the music up and sang along And there was a God in heaven And the world made perfect sense We were young and were in love And we were easy to And I hope my hasty heart 
will forgive me just this once if I stop to wonder how on earth you are. But that's just a lot of water underneath the bridge I burn, and there's no use in backtracking around corners I have turned. Still, I guess some things we bury are just bound to rise. You know, well, first of all, it doesn't really have a chorus, so to speak. You know, it just has that sort of B section. Uh, th to me, the most interesting thing uh, was that I I kept the little bridge. You know, I guess something must have happened, and I we you know, I, I kept that real open. I thought that was kind of neat. I'm not going to say what happened. I'm just something must have happened. We must have said goodbye, and my heart must have broken. But I can't recall just why. I thought that was pretty cool. And then, and then the hardest part of that was to write, how am I going to sum this up? You know, and, and I, eventually I came up with, uh, you know, for all the time that's passed and, uh, and uh, you know, there's a certain amount of luck, I think, in writing lyrics too. Sometimes you get a break. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sometimes things like Whisper of Smoke, that was just a, a little accidental break in the thing. Sometimes the, the English language kind of gives you a thing. And, uh, you know, that last line, uh, uh, I'll, no, I'll, the things we bury are just bound to rise again. You know, that's sort of kind of, that's a cliche kind of thing. But uh, that, you know, it's funny, that's, uh, I really, I don't feel, I mean, I, we all have our honeymoon period on when we write a song, you know, I mean, I was just the greatest thing. But I really felt like uh, that was something really, really exceptional. Uh, when I, and I played it for my mother and, and she cried. And I swear, it's the only time I ever saw her cry on a song. You know, she and she was a big, huge fan, but and that's the first time I moved her to tears. The proof is in the tears. I wanted to ask you about rhyme again. Um, how often do you let the rhyme dictate your content as opposed to letting your content sort of drive the rhyme? Usually what I do is I, I get a line that I'm going to have to rhyme with. Mm -hmm. You know, and as you get more experienced, you know, you, you try to make sure you don't have that last thing you're going to rhyme with be a weird rhyme you know what i mean yeah. it's going to be a word that's not too i mean it's, it's got plenty of options or it's just not it's just it's hardly anything rhymes with it mm -hmm. you know what i mean like orange oh. you know you don't you don't <laughs> you don't rhyme with, you don't have to rhyme with orange and uh but but i, I usually i have a line that i think is pretty good line mm -hmm. you know then i've got to go back and write and then i then i start going i start looking for what i call ballpark rhymes and I'll go through my rhyming dictionary and I'll, and I'll just pull out words that I think have the right emotional baggage, maybe, do you know what I mean? That I might be able to work outside, out of some kind of rhyme thing. And then I just start, you know, brainstorming. You know, the, the English language lets you say things so many different ways that, uh, you know, but I really do feel like sometimes I get my best, some of my best lines 
because I have boxed myself into trying to get a perfect rhyme. And I don't always stick with it. You know, I mean, I, I certainly have rhymes I don't think are perfect. But, you know, some lines, it's funny, some lines, my ear just says it's got to be a perfect rhyme. I can't explain it, but the way it unfolds to my ear, it's got to be, it's got to be an exact rhyme. Other lines, it doesn't have to be that close. And, you know, I always tell songwriters, uh, I'd rather you write a really good line that doesn't have a perfect rhyme than a, than a bad line that has a perfect I'm sure you've had students like that. The rhymes, I always say, you know, you got to control the rhymes. Don't let the rhymes control you. By staying loyal to a perfect rhyme, it also asks the writer to really challenge their creativity and find something unique to say. In your first verse, you rhyme start and heart, which are perfect rhymes. But what you say before you get to those rhymes is not cliche. When I heard that old familiar music start, it was like a dam had broken in my heart. Such a good line and such a great image. Ah, thank you. Well, yeah, you know, I like... I like analogies uh, yeah. and things like that. Uh, I love to get uh, stuff like that into a lyric if I can. In your second verse, uh, the first line, we were rolling through the Rockies. The alliteration of that verb, rolling and Rockies, and just the image of just the, the flow of that line, how it feels like it is. It's an onomatopoeia of... of of that moment we were rolling through the Rockies. It feels like you're rolling. Did you have a different verb um, when you first wrote, wrote the song or did Roland just come out? I don't think so. I probably went right, right out of the shoot with it. You know, my ear liked it. Yeah. I, I tell you, you know, what's funny is that drive we were on, you know, where we heard Randy Travis, there, we had this really weird thing happen. We were going way, way up into the Rockies to this Echo Lake and we actually went through clouds. You know, we, there was part of the drive that we really were like in this cloud fog, but you could still see the road pretty good. And it and uh, there was this, it turned out there was this old time car thing going on, like cars from 1912 had a big rally. And so they were coming back from Echo Lake with all these, it was like the twilight zone, these strange cars were coming out through the clouds. But anyway, that's really, the, you know, that, again, that's literally, we were up above the clouds. We got above that and, uh, got out of those clouds but you know again that's i like visual things and that uh lyrically this song is just so full of verbs there's so much action going on in the song and it really you've done such a great job of really setting the scene you know just to finish that verse um we were rolling through the rockies we were up above the clouds when a station out of jackson played that song and it seemed to fit the moment, and the moment seemed to freeze when we turned the music up and sang along. So all those verbs, rolling, uh, the station played the song, the moment seemed to freeze, and we turned the music up and sang along. And all of the verbs in the first verse, I was standing at the counter, I was waiting for the change, when I heard that old familiar music start. It was like a lighted match had been tossed into my soul. It was like a dam had broken in my heart. The whole song is just packed with verbs, and it really adds so much um, fire to a lyric, especially when there's this many verbs. And there's some great verbs. 
I think it would be a great assignment to have someone just pull up this lyric, listen to the song, and circle all the verbs and notice how much energy there is in the song because of all of the verbs. Um, but, you know, as we talked about, you change the lyric each time the B section comes around, and then you have another verse, a third verse after the bridge. Mm-hmm. That was, a, yeah, like I said, that was a, that, you know, so I got to, I got to make some conclusion here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, I couldn't just do another verse of, you know, another, another memory. You know, at some point I just thought about, uh, well, for all his times, you know, all the times past now, you know, you would think I haven't gotten very far, you know, uh, and I, and I hope my hasty heart will forgive me just this once. I stopped to wonder how on earth you're. That, you know, the hasty heart was a movie uh, back in the 40s. And I, that's where I got that uh, adjective. I've often found like it, it, a lot of times I'll have a word that seems pretty boring. But if I can get an adjective in front of it, I can make it pretty interesting. Yeah, heart is one of those cliche words that we all have to use because we all have one and we all have a right to use it as a songwriter. Um, but hasty, hasty heart makes heart more interesting. Um, and also you have the alliteration with hasty and heart, which is always irresistible in lyric writing. So when you, so all of the B sections change lyrically and the song just keeps evolving in such a beautiful way. Did you start the song by writing the verses first? I, I suspect a verse. Yeah. Because like I said, I started trying to remember when when did I have that phenomena happen, you know? Yeah. And I started thinking of situations where I'd heard a song that really took me back. And that's where I started, I'm sure. You use the classic storytelling chords in this song. Um, in the key, the sheet music that I have for this is in, is in the key of F major. And those when you use the one, th the four and the five in any key, the one chord, the four chord and the five chord, they are just, there's hundreds and thousands of fabulous songs that use these chords. And sometimes when people learn too much harmony, they sort of abandon these chords and want to shove all the new chords that they've learned in a song. And sometimes that can be really distracting. So, but also, you know, people want to explore and do different things. And so one of the things that, that we can always try out instead of starting on the one chord, start on the four chord or start on the five chord. And you begin the song on the five chord and it's the five, seven, sus. So you're using the sus and you're using the, the seven in that chord, the dominant chord in the key, C7. And it immediately draws the listener in and creates this suspense like what you know what's happening what, what are they remembering and you also play that chord for three bars while the melody is moving against it before you land on the one again it's just so effective because there is such beautiful lyric writing happening here along with a great melody and a great singer that these chords are doing their best work well you know that i use there's just one chord in that whole line I, I love open tunings, you know, and there's just a, that I was standing at the counter and there's just this one chord until I come back to the to the one. Yeah. But it's a really, you know, it's really it's very simple. And against that chord and the melody, 
um, you keep going back and forth between the, the sus4 and the three in the melody. So you're creating this instant tension in the melody against that chord. So for the whole song, you've used these classic storytelling chords, but in a surprising order by starting on the five chord and also by flavoring that chord um, with the sus4, that unstable pitch that you're adding to that chord. And when you get to the bridge section, you use a chord that's in the key that you haven't used yet. You use the six minor, which would be a D minor chord in the key of F. And you pair that chord with the word goodbye. So you offer that minor feeling to that word. And then when you use the word heart, heart, my heart must have been broken. You use the two chord, but you use the two dominant chord. And that chord is the only chord in the song that's not in the key. So it's a dominant two chord. It's a secondary dominant chord because that G7 chord doesn't belong in the key of F. That is the five chord of the key of C. So you're just borrowing that, and it really lifts up that moment and really draws your attention to that word, and it's just used in such a fabulous way. So... That was nice to see, but you saved that six minor for the bridge and added that one chord that was out of the key, then going back to the five sus chord uh, in the key of F as you leave that. Let's play that bridge. I guess something must have happened and we must have said Before we end our conversation, is there any chance we could get you to play a little bit of the song Remembers When? I haven't been singing. I don't know if I can do the whole song, but I'll, show, I'll do it. So I do. I was standing at the counter. I was waiting for the change when I heard that old familiar music start. It was like a lighted match had been tossed into my soul. It was like a dam had broken in my heart. It's really simple. Then I had to do something different. After taking every detour, getting lost and losing track, so that even if I wanted, I could not find my way back. After driving out the memory of the way things might have been, after I'd forgotten all about us, the song remembers when. Thank you for playing that. I'm sorry I'm out of shape. So good. But thank you. Is there anything that you'd like to say that you didn't get a chance to talk about um, that you'd like to share with listeners and learners? I, um, I, w- I always tell, it's almost like, you know, if you're an aspiring songwriter, um, it's like there's this fork in the road. Do you want to write hits or do you want to write great songs? Not that you can't do the same thing in, the, in a given song, but in a way, um, I just tell writers to write what 
write what you want to write. Don't write what you think they want. I knew some, I knew some pretty good writers over the years who are really chasing the charts, you know what I mean? And uh, you never catch it <laughs> in a way. And, I, and so my whole thing is, that's why I don't like to be in the music business in my face, because I just want to write what I want to write. And I want, you know, uh, I just want to, you know, to me, it's like, uh, I really, in a funny way, consider myself to be like a painter. And I just want to paint the painting I want to paint. And I don't want to hand anyone else a brush. And I just want to paint it the way I want to paint it. That's how I get off on it. You know, I've had, I had some pretty good writers over the years tell me, well, you know, you should try to adapt more to, you know, what's going on and change your style and get more with what's happening. You know, that's not what I do. You know, I, I like, I, you know, everybody's painting abstract now. Well, I'm still doing realism. You know what I mean? And that's just what I do. And if I can get lucky once in a while, that's what I'm going to do. But uh, to me, it's the difference between a labor of love and a job. I really appreciate your patience while you're climbing Mount Everest. And I want to talk about, you know, the angle of your foot in the crevice of the mountain but hopefully by us kind of stopping and breaking things down, the listener can um, try some new things and get some ideas that they can walk away with. It's, yeah, you're, you're, you're sort of re- pointing out things that I never even realized during the song. You know what I mean? I just sort of do it all instinctually. You certainly do. Well, I've certainly enjoyed it too. Feel free to, uh, you know, if you ever want to run anything by me again or can uh, do another subject, uh, I'll be glad to do it. You got it. Let's do it. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. It really has. Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow me on Instagram and send me a message. Let me know what you've learned, what, what's working for you in your songwriting, what you'd like to learn more about. If there's something I haven't covered that you have a suggestion for, I would love to hear from you. And also go to iTunes and leave a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow me on Instagram and send me a message. Let me know what you're learning from the podcast, what's been the most helpful, and anything you might want me to take a deeper dive on or maybe some topics that I haven't covered yet. And if you'd like to be on my mailing list and find out about some upcoming events and teaching opportunities, group classes, go to scarletkeys.com and sign up for my mailing list. And go to iTunes, leave a review and a rating. I want to thank Peter Sykes for mixing this episode and Autogross for writing the show song, for singing it and producing it. And you can find their websites in the show notes along with some bullet points from some of the wonderful things that Hugh shared with us today. So thank you so much. Now go write a song. What's in a song? 